open your Bibles. I'll talk fast tonight. And we'll look at Philippians chapter 4, verse number 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse number 4. Martin Lloyd-Jones titled his commentary on Philippians, The Life of Joy and Peace. William MacDonald, in his book introduction to Philippians, said that Philippians reveals the true secret of happiness. C.I. Schofield, in his introduction, writes, Christian experience, he would teach us, is not something which is going on around the believer, but something which is going on within him. This evening we're considering once again Revela- uh, excuse me, Philippians chapter 4, verse number 4. And I'm not going to ask you to stand as we uh, read this verse. One quick verse and, and we'll do things a little bit differently. But Paul says simply, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, Rejoice. Now, I mentioned in the past couple of messages that Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 is an imperative. This is a command from the Apostle Paul and one that's non-negotiable. It's a command that actually can only be carried out by those who are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that Christians are really the only way they can actually carry it out is because we have the Holy Spirit within. And the power of the Holy Spirit within us is the reason that we're able to carry out this command. And and so that should tell us then that when you find Christians that aren't happy, when they are ruled by circumstances, when they are depressed by things that are going on around them, that those Christians are out of God's will and they're not living by the Spirit. Now that might be harsh, you think, for me to say with some of the things that people are going through. And you say, preacher, well, you just don't understand how hard that things really are. But I have to stick with the Apostle Paul and just say what he says, that when we fail to rejoice, this is a command, and so when we fail to do so, we sin against the Lord. We don't trust him as we should, because if you remember, Jesus said that we're not to be anxious, we're not to be worried about things, and that's because God is always going to do the very best for his children. He will never fail us. When circumstances rule us, that means that we have a failure to trust Christ. If you look at the story of Israel leaving Egypt, that's probably one of the best examples that we find. They were on their way to the promised land. It's the best example of how joy quickly turns into the problems and impossibilities of circumstance. Because when they left Egypt, it wasn't very long before they got into the wilderness and they began to grumble and complain against God. But did God ever fail them? Did he ever let down his people? No, he didn't. He was always faithful to them. So they they had needs, but God always met their needs. And that's really something that we all have to consider when we face very difficult situations. Uh, The economy's turned sour. Things are very difficult for us. But now is not the time for us to turn our backs on God and forget this command that we have in Scripture that we are to rejoice. So I decided after thinking and surveying the situation that we're in today, that we ought to spend a little time and just camp right here on this verse for a little while and just be reminded about some reasons to rejoice. There are blessings to think about, uh, blessings that God gives us every single day. And when we have the blessings of God on our mind, then we'll have or we'll achieve the true happiness that the Apostle Paul had and the same one that the Philippians found as they followed what he said to do. But what came out of the trials 
uh, of the Apostle Paul and things that he went through and uh, the prison experience, for instance. Uh, what came out of that was not Paul saying, Woe is me. God has forsaken me. God's forgotten me. That's not what came out of his trials. What came out of it was the joy and the privilege of serving God no matter what would happen. The common experience of all of those people in the New Testament times and of all the apostles was this. Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. Now, James, the apostle, told us what the result of that is. What happens when we count joy, even tribulations and things like that that we go through. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And if you'll glance down to verse number 11 in the same chapter in Philippians, you see here the perfect work of patience. Paul says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am in, I am therewith to be content. And so Philippians is the life of joy and peace. It does reveal the secret of true happiness, and it is the experience of what's going on inside of us rather than what's going on all around us. Now, in verse number 8, Paul says, If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. So that's what we're doing in these messages. The first two, and this one tonight, we're thinking on these things, reasons to rejoice. And these are things that help us to focus on what we should be focusing on. And when we do, when we think on the right things, we can obey God's command to rejoice always. Now, let me mention to you very quickly the reasons that we've already given. And I'm not going to go into these in in detail again. I don't think we need to do that. But let me just mention them to you. Number one was to rejoice in God's salvation. Rejoice because in the mercy and love of grace of God, he rescued you from certain destruction in hell. Number two is to rejoice in God's sovereignty. Rejoice because God rules over all. God controls all circumstances. Number three, rejoice in God's supply. Rejoice that God gives us life and breath and health in all things. God blesses both spiritually and physically. Number four was for us to rejoice in God's supplication. Rejoice because we have the right through Jesus Christ to come into the presence of God in prayer. So those are four good reasons that we rejoice, but that's not all there is to think about. And we could probably, uh, probably list hundreds of things that, that are reasons to rejoice. We sing the song, count your many blessings, and when you sing that, you find all of the reasons. So we really, you know, think about that, we really shouldn't have any problem obeying this command. So let's just talk about a few more tonight. Rejoice in God's salvation, his sovereignty, his supply, and God's supplication. And number five, rejoice in God's scripture. Thank the Lord that he's given us his book. That's God's revelation. That is where God tells us about himself and tells us who he is. And so we rejoice in God's scripture because, first of all, it gives us the reason for creation. The reason for creation. Now, how many times have you heard people uh, ask the question, or you've read it somewhere, why are we here? Where did we come from? And scientists struggle with the answers to those questions. Religion even struggles with the answers to those questions. Now, the Bible is the most peculiar book that was ever written because it contains the real answers. 
And people are asking those two questions without acknowledging that for 3,500 years, we've had the answer to the questions all along. It's been right here in God's book. But what people do is they research everything else besides looking into the Word of God to find the exact reasons for God's creation. Why are we here? Why did God put us in this place? Well, there are other religious writings that people say that came from God, uh, came from our God or came from some other God. But there's really no book like the Bible that literally transforms lives. And I'm speaking here, of course, of a real transformation. You may read a book that has some good principles in it, and you might hear people say, well, here is a book that I've read, and this is the thing that changed my life. This is a book that gave me a new outlook. This book gave me a fulfilling philosophy that I can live by. This is a book that gave me the meaning of life. Well, of course, all of those books are nothing more but transformation of physical life or of mental life. I was reading the biography of a man just the other day, and he had become absorbed in uh, the mysticism of Eastern religion and philosophy. And he thought that he had come to the place where he had reached unity with his soul, that he, was, he had found nirvana, and, and that he had overcome all human emotions and all physical consciousness. And he became so deeply involved in all of that stuff that it didn't do anything other than to leave him in chaos and confusion. He was trying to live in a metaphysical world. And when you're in a metaphysical world, you can't even admit the chaos and confusion that you're in because you, uh, it may not even be real, and in fact, you might not even be real. Uh, There's no comfort, there's no joy in that. How, How can you find any peace in anything like that? There's nothing there that causes a person to rejoice. Now, thank the Lord that the Bible does not lead us into that kind of nonsense. The, uh, the Bible does not lead us into spiritual nothingness. The Bible carries with it a testimony that those who have read it have been changed by it. They've been taken from spiritual death into spiritual life. And it's transforming, not because it denies human existence, but because it gives us the very reasons for human existence. There is a reason why we're here. And interestingly, the Eastern philosophers, the Eastern mysticism has missed it, as well as much of, I guess, what you'd call the other side of Christianity. For the most part, they miss it too. You know why we're here. I don't think I have to explain it to you because we find it in our worldview of theology. We're here because we've been placed here for the glory of God. And so we look at all things that are going on in the world, not through man's eyes, but we look through God's eyes. And so we look at salvation and suffering through God's eyes. And we're content in the state that we're in because both salvation and suffering, as it turns out, are for the glory of God. Now, when you turn all that around and you begin to focus on man, then salvation becomes a, a, a product or an outworking, working not of God's grace, but of man's work. And if it's not entirely out of man's work, then many people believe that at least man has a part in it. He he contributes something to it. Well, that kind of thinking makes man primary uh, in the creation, and all the creation is centered in him. And so if that's true, suffering could never be a reason for rejoice. It's It's a reason for depression, because that means that the highest crowning achievement of all of creation, and it's all centered in us, we have miserably failed. We haven't been able to deliver ourselves out of any kind of physical suffering or social ills or or whatever it might be. 
And neither will we ever be able to solve that. Man has never lifted himself out of that. And human history is the proof that we are simply not going to be able to do it. But if you look at all of this, that it's for a different cause, that it's brought about because it will ultimately result in God's glory, and that was the intended purpose, then we rejoice because God's will is done. His intention is that he would make us entire and complete, and he has ordained the means by which that is accomplished. But some people will look at it, and they will say, well, well, that means that God is a tyrant. I mean, you're you're preaching something here about a God who just wants us to wriggle and writhe in pain because God just likes to see us suffer. And God is like a mean little kid with a magnifying glass out there on the sidewalk trying to fry a bug with with a magnifying glass. And I'd have to remind you that when we think like that, we need to understand that sin entered into the world by divine permission, not by divine fiat. This is all our fault, not God's fault. And the very same people that complain about our theology, uh, and when we say that man no longer has a completely free, unencumbered will, the very same people that complain about that are the same ones who complain against God because he didn't prevent Adam from sinning. Do you get what I'm saying? Such is the power of human reasoning, isn't it? Well, all of that to say this, that God is gracious to make silk purses out of sow's ears. He takes the bad thing that man has done in creation, he takes all the bad things and he turns that around to such a, in such a way in order to bring glory to him. And in the process, he makes us the glorious trophies of his grace. Now, friends, that's one of the reasons why the Bible is a reason for rejoicing. And it explains all that. It tells us about that. We're not left out there in in the field, in left field somewhere, trying to figure all these things out. The Bible has the answers, and they're brought to light by the Holy Spirit using the Scriptures. Paul said to Timothy, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now that brings me to another observation about the scriptures. We have a reason to rejoice in God's scripture because of redemption in Christ. W.A. Criswell wrote a piece entitled, The Scarlet Thread of Redemption. And in the introduction to that, he said, The Bible is a book of redemption. It is that or it's nothing at all. It is not a book of history or science or of anthropology or of cosmogony. It is a book of salvation and deliverance for lost mankind. He said, The whole of the Bible, whether the Old Testament or the New Testament, looks to the mighty redemptive atonement of Christ. So I think that we can rejoice that day after day and page after page as we go through God's holy word, there we see God's love in sending a Savior into the world. God does not want us to be without the book. Now for centuries, people have tried to destroy God's word. And if not just an attempt to burn it, to rid the world of it, they've tried to mistranslate or they have mistranslated it, they translate it, they've perverted in myriads of ways... And we have all of these plethora of Bible versions out there today that's only serve one purpose, and that is to cast doubt on the truthfulness of God's Word. But through all of those attempts and all of the perversions, God still has the Word. And in the Word, we find the story of redemption. And folks, you can't get that anyplace else. The Holy Spirit does not use anything else. 
He only uses the Word of God. Peter said, Seeing ye have purified yourselves in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Do you know there are many people that go to church seeking for the solution to this great hole that they have in their soul? They go to church, and when they get there, the pastor stands up to preach, and many, many times he doesn't even open the Bible. And when he does open it, he may read a scripture, but then his message goes on to something else, and he never even expounds the scripture that he's just read. Folks, the Bible is the only thing that the Holy Spirit uses to transform our lives. That's where we find our reasons to rejoice. And so if you close up the Bible and you don't use the Bible, then you just shut yourself out from the reasons to rejoice. You ignore Scripture and you don't have all these reasons. So shame, shame on preachers who who substitute man's reasoning for God's Word. And you know, and really, it, it doesn't matter what you substitute for it. It really doesn't matter. I mean, if you substitute Roman, the Roman Catholic catechism... And, you know, like I said, I'm so so happy when uh, Brother Richard Bennett gets here to talk to us about this. But you can take the Roman Catholic Catechism and put that in the place of God's Word. Or you can put Joel Osteen's Word of Faith, Prosperity Gospel, put that in place. And and it's really no different than if you replace God's Word with Plato or replace it with Confucius. It really doesn't make a difference because none of those systems are close to God anyway. But the word of God faithfully read and truthfully expounded is what exposes that scarlet thread of redemption that runs throughout the pages of the Bible. So you close it and you ignore it, and there's no reason for rejoicing. Jesus said, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. I rejoice in God's Scripture because I just love studying it. I love to bring God's words to you. Stay in the Scriptures. Stay in the Scriptures. And if you do, the rest of your life will fall into the proper perspective. Now, I want you to turn to uh, Psalm 119 for just a moment. So, uh, we'll finish here this particular point. But I wanted to speak for just a moment about the Word of God, what the Word of God did for David. The Psalms are just full of David's delight in God's Word. But this 119th Psalm is particularly apropos for our understanding of this, and I think you'll see why in just a moment. But if you look at verse number 97, Psalm 119, David says, Oh, how I love thy law! It is my meditation all the day. Thou, through thy commandments, hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way, that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way." Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have sworn, and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. I am afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy word. David says, Thy commandments have made me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. 
And our reading there, that last verse that we read, David said, I am afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy word. Quicken me. That means make me alive, O Lord, according to thy word. Spurgeon wrote on this verse, and he says, In the previous verse, the psalmist had been sworn in as a soldier of the Lord, and in this verse, he is called to suffer hardness in that capacity. The service of the Lord does not screen us from trial, but rather secures it for us. And isn't that just what Paul said in Philippians 1 verse 29? That scripture we've read so many times in this study. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for his sake. Well, how is it possible that you could rejoice in that capacity? Suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. Well, you do it by going to the word of God and there finding that scarlet thread of redemption where Christ suffered and died for you and redeemed you to God. And so that's why we can never stop reading and preaching the Word of God. Now, let's go on. Uh, I originally had three more of these, and, and they would stretch us into a fourth part of the sermon. But I'm just going to fit in one more tonight, and then we can move on in a couple of weeks to the next verse. But, but let me just do this. I want to just briefly, very briefly, tell you what the other two that I was going to talk about were. Uh, they aren't on your listening sheet, so you won't find them there. But if you want to jot this down before we get to the next one we are going to talk about, here they are. The other, one, other two are, we rejoice in God's service, and we rejoice in God's security. We rejoice in His service... Because God has given us the right to participate in his work, and then he rewards us for that participation. You know, one thing that I really love to do, I like to stay busy. I, I couldn't be Leno. I have to stay busy. I don't know what it would be like, you know, if God said to me, well, okay, I, I'm going to save you, but what I want you to do, I just want you to sit over there, and I don't want you to do anything. You just go about your business, whatever you want to do, and then I'll be back in contact when the uh, undertaker puts you in the coffin. Can you imagine how nerve-wracking that would be? I mean, what I need is some assurance. I need to know that God is with me all of the time, and you can't get assurance out of nothingness. We forget what we're saved from very quickly if we aren't busy in the Lord's work. You see, when we work for the Lord, as we're working, we're always being reminded why we do that. John said, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So if we're always doing something for the Lord, we we, we know him, he says. You stop doing and you very quickly lose your assurance. And that's why you see many Christians that have no joy. They don't rejoice because they stop doing. And what they're riding on is that long-ago profession of faith that they made way back there in the past, and it's really nothing more than a distant memory. So we rejoice because we can serve God, but then we rejoice also because of God's security. You can make a note of that one too, because here's what the psalmist says. God says in the Psalms, "...the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand." Now, you, you may be just like me, and I'm sure you are. You've fallen a lot of times. But you never can fall so far that you're cast away from the Lord forever. Jude said it this way, "...now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy." See that last part? With exceeding joy. And that's what you get with God's security. 
So think about that. You can obey the command to rejoice in the Lord always when you're thinking how secure you are in Jesus Christ. Now those are just a couple of extra ones thrown in for free. And uh, they're probably worth another sermon. So if any of you would like to develop that, those two thoughts a little bit further, I'll surrender the pulpit and then you can tell us about it. But let me give you this last one on your listening sheet tonight because I, I like this one. I like them all. But the others are things that I can do between me and God. And this one is one that I need you for and one that you need me for. Rejoice in God's saints. Rejoice in God's saints. Now, somebody a long time ago said, misery loves company. Well, you know, Christians, the world may think that Christians are miserable because we don't have all the world's vices. I mean, the world is thoroughly convinced that you can't be happy unless you have all of these things. You can't be happy without, without partying, without drinking, without drugs, without sex, and all those things. You can't be happy unless you have those things. Well, we love company. Christians love company, but it's not because we're miserable. We love company because God has built into us a desire for fellowship. And that's why God has given us a church. So we rejoice, first of all, for our fellowship. What do you get with the church? Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to take a look here for just a moment at what we get with the church. I said a moment ago, some of you are going through tough times. Uh, I was talking to my nephew just a few weeks ago, and um, he was telling me about going to his 20th high school reunion. And he said, when you go to those reunions, he said, all you do is you sit around and everybody looks at one another waiting, kind of sizing everybody up to see who's the one that's been the most successful, who's the one that has the biggest house and all of that. So he says he went to this um, 20th year reunion and everybody's looking at everybody and wondering who's got the big job and the big house and nobody was saying anything. So somebody said, well, I'm losing my house. And he said, it all just opened up right then. And everybody started talking. He said, we're going through the same thing that's happening to us too. So I guess there was a little bit of empathy that was going around. Well, you multiply that by a thousand times, and you know what you have? You have a church. You have somebody to sympathize or empathize with you. Let's read verse 13. 1 Corinthians, let's start there, 12, verse number 13. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. Now, I have to pause right there and bear with me just a little bit because I'm going to throw in a little bit of a doctrinal statement right here. Uh, Perhaps 90% of all Christianity, when they read 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 13, they assume that Paul is speaking about Holy Spirit baptism. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body. So they think that that's Holy Spirit baptism. Well, when you take that interpretation, if you think it through, you're going to run through a labyrinth of impossibilities. If you're a person who believes in local church doctrine, where it's going to lead you is into a place where there's some other kind of a mystical body of Christ that's something other than the church. And if you're somebody who believes in the universal invisible church, you've just just destroyed the whole premise of Paul's argument about us all being part of one body that functions together. A universal invisible church doesn't even work like that. Now, he's obviously speaking here about water baptism. It's water baptism that we're baptized through and that brings us into the Lord's church. 
Arthur Pink has a great treatise on this. It's called, uh, Does 1 Corinthians 12 Mean Universal Church? And if you're interested in that, you can read about that online. So I just had to throw that in. That's a free comment. Uh, Verse number 14. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the feet, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need. But God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Now look back again at verse number 26. That is a great verse. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. In the fellowship of God's people, you have others who empathize with all of your sorrows that you go through, and they rejoice in all the blessings that you receive. And pay very close attention there to the word rejoice. We rejoice in God's saints. And so when you're going through something economically, physically, mentally, whatever it might be, in your church you have people who help you to shoulder that burden. If misery loves company and you feel miserable, then we're here to share the misery with you. Now, not that we like to be miserable, but we know this, that miserable people certainly do improve when they have somebody to share the burden. Isn't that what Paul said in Galatians? He says, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, if you've been coming on Sunday mornings and you listened to the sermon just a a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, we went into this thing extensively. What is the law of Christ? Anybody tell me what the law of Christ is? Oh, please. It's that we love one another. Isn't that the law of Christ? I mean, the whole law is divided into two sections, loving God and loving each other. The law of Christ is to love God and to love each other. So who couldn't rejoice when you have somebody to love you? You think about that, you have somebody to love you. You know, I have a a family that's 2,300 miles away. And most of the time, I'm glad that they are. But with my church, I'm not so happy to be so far away from you. I'm just really not that happy about it. And, and there are reasons that I want to be with you people. I like to be in church because you are here. Going to church is not drudgery for me. You know, I hear people say, well, I, I'm just too tired to go to church on Wednesday nights. I really just don't enjoy Wednesday night church. You know, I can't imagine that I would say to my children, don't bring the grandchildren over. I'm tired of them. I mean, I just, just don't want to be around them. 
Peter said, and we read it just a minute ago, seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit and the unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Well, brother, I love you, but I just don't want to be around you. That's not much fervency. Now, I can go into a lot of reasons why you need to be a member of the church and what you get from that, but let me just emphasize this part, rejoicing. Rejoice that you have somebody to bear your burdens and rejoice because you also have the blessings of being able to shoulder someone else's burdens. And then finally, we'll stop with this. Rejoice in God's saints for our relationship. You know, it's, it's possible to have fellowship to some degree without relationship. I can go to a ball game and there we can have all kinds of fellowship, but it's not the same thing as having a relationship. Relationship gives fellowship a whole different type of quality. Now, a moment ago, I was talking about, you know, my family, and, 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 and this is what you get with the church. You get a new family. In the Bible, the terminology is always this. It's always brethren. And you see the apostles and others writing that way. It's brethren. It's brothers and sisters. We don't use that too much anymore. I mean, we, we call each other Mr. and Mrs. and Ms., And it sounds like we're at a board meeting rather than at a family fellowship. I've told you before, when I I first came to this church, I was really not used to the way that people address one another. Because I was always hearing that thing of Mr. This and Mr. That and Mrs. and so on. We always called each other brother and sister. I think that we can rejoice because our church is a place where we can have refuge from the world. We can get away from the world, a place that does not want relationships. And if they want relationships, it's always for what they can get out of it. Sure, I'll have a relationship with you. What have you got to offer me? And if you've got something I can use, then I can be your friend. We can have a relationship. But the church is not, what can you do for me? The church is, what can I do for you? Don't you ever join a church to see what you can get out of it. You join a church for what you can put into it. And if you get that perspective right, it's never whether a church has a good music program, and that's what draws you in. It's not whether the church has a lot of social activities. It's not whether we have children's activities. That's not what cements you to the church. What cements you to the church is that you are able to do the work of Christ which is exactly what I just described, loving one another and sharing the burdens of other people that are in your church. When you join a church, always, always think about what you can put into it and offer yourself to the service of the Lord. So I think we can stop with that. I mean, there are thousands of reasons that we can find to rejoice. There's just so many ways that God blesses us. I think that when you get up in the morning, you can start the day rejoicing. Start thinking about the right things, and you can, you can obey this command. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the time we're able to spend together tonight, and we just thank you for our church. Uh, we thank you for the fellowship of your people, for the relationship that we have with one another that comes through our common bond with Jesus Christ as Savior. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to our Uh, people tonight to help us to look back over all the reasons that we've given for rejoicing and just understand what a great God that you are. There's no reason to be unhappy. You supply everything that we need. Bless us as we sing tonight and then as we fellowship in a few minutes and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we...